Perceptions Podcast. Not only are we still divided by religion and politics, neither side sees the other as good. Imagine a DeLorean time machine car appears outside your house this year and you get in and you're told that you're going to 2052 to see what the future looks like. You arrive and you see what it actually looks like 30 years from now. Do you want that future? What would you do to get there or to get away from that future? That's what we're going to find out. How about this? Well, the vote was fairly clear, just over 60% compared to just under 40%. Compelling in its outcome, in fact, an overwhelming majority of Aussies saying yes. Well, yes to same-sex marriage, that is. That's right, remember 2017? The result of the Australian plebiscite, in which citizens were asked whether or not to allow the government to change the definition of marriage. And the vote landed roughly, yes, you guessed it, where the voice vote recently just landed. The voice vote to recognise Aboriginal people in the Constitution and establish a permanent advisory body giving advice to the government about the issues affecting First Nations peoples. Just over 60% and just under 40%. Only this time, an overwhelming no from the Australian population. Now, the news is still sinking in, the the blame is still being apportioned, the reasons why it failed are being asserted from both sides of the political and cultural divide. Though increasingly, the cultural divide is more important and more compelling than the political divide, and that's across all aspects of life in Australia at the moment. And the narrative is now confused. There are mixed signals about who Australians are as a nation, who we are. Is it the case that the same Australia that was progressing towards a kinder, more progressive nation in 2017 has somehow regressed to being a reactionary, racist nation? Is it the case that the yes vote overreached and did not take into account the lack of clarity about the nature of the changes being made? A lack that many clearly saw as the government hiding something. Is it the case that a partisan Grinch-like leader of the opposition, Peter Dutton, scuppered any chance of a positive outcome, or positive to those wanting a yes at least? Or is it the case that a partisan, gleeful Prime Minister, who thought that the last election result was proof that everyone was on board with his agenda, scuppered any chance of a yes, overplaying his hand in the process? The media will be picking over the bones of this for weeks, for months. The recriminations about who is to blame will continue into years probably. We're at status quo, sort of. Well, we're on the other side of status quo and we're not really sure what's happening next. On the yes side, Prime Minister Albanese has vowed to ensure that grassroots change for Aboriginal people will occur, that there will be real movement of the needle. And on the no side, Indigenous leader Warren Mundine has called for, and angrily so, grassroots change for Aboriginal people to occur, calling for 
real movement of the needle. So it seems everyone wants something to happen, something good to happen, but here we are at an impasse as to what that is. As has been reported, the Prime Minister called for Australians to show kindness to each other after the referendum. Now there's something in that, isn't there? But also a painful admission, even if it's a subconscious admission, that kindness wasn't being shown before the referendum question. There was a lot of heat being thrown around, some brutal words were said. The No campaign accused the Yes campaign of a program of vilification and obfuscation. And the Yes campaign accused the No campaign of a program of vilification and obfuscation. Some choice words were said about other people, other people on the other side. Which, funnily enough, or perhaps sadly enough, reminds us that the similarity between this campaign and the same-sex marriage plebiscite vote in 2017 was not confined to the percentage breakdowns. Here we are living in a cultural context, not just in Australia but in the West, in which we're called on to celebrate all things non-binary, yet it seems with yes and no it's binary all the way down, and no room for maybe. It's a little like deciding anything really, uh, anything that's complex that requires a binary result. So choosing a school for my children for instance. So 60% of my thinking may lean towards one school, while 40% of my thinking may lean towards another school. But 100% of my child has to go to one school or the other. And it's interesting too how world events have put even the referendum in the shade this past few weeks. The Israeli-Hamas conflict has dominated the front pages of newspapers everywhere. Sure, I, I read the foreign newspapers online, how the referendum in Australia was shaping up. But I also read of how a protest on the steps of the Sydney Opera House went full-blown anti-Semitic. And that's also been a deeply divisive issue, binary even. Never mind the articles in the online editions of the papers, read the comments sections below the line. You see, for all the sophistication we claim to have in the West, cultural and political sophistication at least, we seem to be just as tribal as ever, and that seems set to continue. In a sense, the referendum was forced to carry a load that it was not capable of bearing. It was not only going to repair relationships with Indigenous people and resolve some of the long-term intractable issues, it was somehow going to bring us together a unity ticket for the nation. And maybe, just maybe, the unity ticket horse in Australia, and indeed across the West, has bolted. Maybe we're trying to shut the gate long after it's gone. So where's it all going? First, it's not going anywhere anytime soon. Let me explain. Jonathan Haidt's book, The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided by Religion and Politics, is well over a decade old now. Haidt's argument is that the intuitive dog wags the rational tail, especially in arguments like this. The morality receptors, he says, of a liberal progressive person are differently tuned to those of a conservative person. 
The conservators' morality receptors are more evenly spread in their sensitivity than the receptors of a more liberal person. Let me explain that. Hyde recognises that humans hold to six morality receptors that are, ironically, framed within binaries. And the six binaries are this, care versus harm, fairness versus cheating, loyalty versus betrayal, authority versus subversion, sanctity versus degradation, and liberty versus oppression. Hyde contends that progressives dial up the first two positive receptors, care and fairness, and they dial them up high. And they dial down the other four, not ignoring them, but subsuming them under those preferred two of care and fairness. And Hyde says conservatives hold the six positives more or less together, meaning that they filter care and fairness through the other four. Conservatives, says Hyde, have a more even spread. They are, therefore, more cautious in their conclusions around fairness and care. A caution that progressives read in terms of the two associated negatives, harm and cheating. So actions that seem necessarily obvious to progressives, actions that need to be made now for the sake of fairness and care, actions that may have unintended fallout later, to which we can attend later if we have to, are viewed by conservatives as unnecessary risks that are unable to be wound back. Figure out the consequences first, then take the action. A conservative is never going to say that. Now, argue that as you will, but Hyde pushes the point that with these receptors, our emotions take preference over our reason. In other words, we feel these receptors intuitively. Then only after that do we line up our arguments to confirm those feelings with rational language. Yet the gap between the two, intuitional reflex and rational response, is so small that we convince ourselves that our rational arguments came first. Now, take the care and fairness receptors as an example, and perhaps test it on yourself. Several Indigenous sports stars spoke up for the Yes campaign. Sports stars who have often suffered terrible racism on the sports field. And a common theme was the vibe of the thing, so to speak. Now, while not the complete message for the Yes, the appeal was to the two primary receptors of care and fairness. These sports stars had, after all, experienced a lack of care and some deep unfairness, not just on the pitch, but within the club. Now, this seems obvious. Clearly, it's obvious. It was obvious to my more progressive Facebook friends. Why wouldn't someone vote yes? The no argument is hollow and self-serving. But for conservatives, their other receptors kicked in at this point. So a large part of the no campaign was based around the constitutional risks and why feelings could not be the final arbiter of such a critical decision. An appeal to an authority outside the vibe. That's what my more conservative friends felt on Facebook. So what seemed an obvious yes for one group seemed an obvious no for another. Yet here's what's interesting. I read two progressive reviews of Hyde's book, reviews published back in 2012 when the book first came out. It was a New York Times review and a Guardian newspaper review. And both, perhaps unwittingly, pondered how progressive political parties could utilise this information about how we operate in the scale of uh, 
all those virtues, as an election-winning strategy. Information is, after all, the route to power. It felt more like a cyber hack of the conservative mind in these two articles, a way to find out how the opposition ticks, rather than any form of recognition that those other four receptors were handy safety brakes that might stabilise and inform the progressive cause, that perhaps we could achieve something by actually listening to one another and coming to some form of consensus. And of course, that cuts the other way. Hence, there were comments like this in a national newspaper about the recent referendum. What's love got to do with a change in the constitution? Nothing. You don't vote with your heart, you vote with your head. Now, who in their righteous mind would ever say that? So here we are, some 11 years after Haidt wrote his book, and not only are we still divided by religion and politics, neither side intrinsically sees the other as good. Haidt's subtitle posed the question as to why good people are thus divided. This felt more like a good person versus bad person campaign, if I'm honest, as did the same-sex marriage plebiscite in 2017. So that's the first thing. The second thing to note is this. Politics isn't the primary division between people, at least not in this case, and at least not in the West at the moment. No votes were recorded in many federal seats that are held by government ministers, including Indigenous Australians Minister Lyndon Burney, who is herself Indigenous. And some of the highest yes votes were in previous Conservative seats in urban settings that have been won by middle ground or so-called teal campaigners. The Prime Minister miscalculated his election victory and assumed a cultural shift in what was then a political decision. Politics, however, as we've been told, is downstream of culture. The biggest divide in the West is cultural, social strata, urban versus suburban, postcodes, and it's regional, tertiary educated versus non-tertiary, wealthy versus battler, degree versus trade certificate. You know what I'm getting at. In the United States, they talk about the flyover states, those mainly red Republican states in the middle of the country, that important people from the blue states and the big cultural centres on the coasts fly over on their way to meetings. Australia, big though it is, doesn't have flyover states in the same way, but each city has its own version. So for example, on Saturday, I went for an amazing run along the coastline of the northern beaches of Sydney. Breathtaking views, expensive houses, Teslas at the front, cafes and restaurants full, funky dogs on leashes being ooed and aahed over by passers-by, leafy, balmy, beautiful. And it felt like I was in the countryside, but I was actually only 15 minutes drive from the urban part of Sydney and the Sydney Harbour Bridge. Yet on Saturday afternoon, I got into a train and travelled nearly 60 kilometres inland for a speaking engagement on the outer edge of Sydney, if it can even still be described as part of the city. And as we go, the trees become smaller and more infrequent. The boxy, brick veneer 80s houses were competing with newer Lego constructions that went for metred mile after metred mile. And there was the occasional Aussie flag at the front, a couple of cars parked up on dry lawns, a hot wind blowing, nary a cafe in sight. No one walking a French bulldog, that's for sure. You see, here's the real yes-no divide in Australia. 
So maybe you voted Labor, the more progressive side, all your life. But when you're two pay packets away from financial oblivion and you've got a rental squeeze which sees tens if not hundreds applying for one dwelling, there's not a lot of cut through from a message coming down to you from above that says you need to think of others who are less fortunate than yourself. The response to that has been, we've had 12 interest rate hikes in just over a year after you. So seeing a constant flow of celebrities, sports stars and corporates all advocating yes, people whose lives seem to hover above the turbulence of a weekly pay packet, well that just made things worse. I wonder if in less financially tight times, times in which interest rates were not destroying budgets or relationships, if the yes vote could have been higher or maybe even have gotten across the line. I guess we'll never know. What it does mean is that for the time being, holding a referendum in Australia about anything is out of the question. So what can we do about this? Well, there's no killer app that can solve it all. I wish there were, but there's not. It's complex. Politics is indeed downstream of culture. There are deep undercurrents socially. And if Jonathan Haidt is correct, deep undercurrents personally that shape us reflexively in ways that even we are unaware of within ourselves. So we are set, it would seem, for a period of even deeper cultural division. The current fractures did not occur overnight, so I guess they won't be healed quickly either. Jonathan Haidt's 2012 aim in his book was to spark a conversation about how we might listen to each other better, give each other more space, admit that we are less rational than we think, put our biases out on the table. But I want to come back to the Prime Minister's words after the referendum, because I think the Prime Minister's a good man. What did he say after the loss of a referendum that he architected and drove? He called on Australians to show kindness to one another. And in that, he is 100% on point. But he's wrong about one thing. When it comes to kindness just prior to the vote, three days out, he called for a yes vote because kindness, he said, costs nothing. Now I get what he meant, but it's not true. Kindness doesn't cost nothing. Kindness costs a lot especially when directed towards those we call our so-called enemies. Kindness may cost me my pride. Kindness may cost me my position. Kindness may cost me my posturing. Kindness may not cost me my righteous mind, but it will often cost me my self-righteous attitudes that come with my varying commitments to those six morality receptors. Reflexive commitments by which I view an opponent as less worthy than I, purely for rational reasons, of course, because of what they believe or how they might vote. And if we took an inventory on kindness in our cultural context, what would it show? Probably that, along with the rest of history, most of us direct kindness towards those we think deserve it. Which isn't really kindness, of course, is it? It's just merit-based reward. So we do need a conversation around kindness in our increasingly harsh 
divided culture. Now, one of the reasons I stay Christian is I realize how unkind I can be. How, as a fairly conservative bloke, I tend to dial down care and fairness, unless, of course, they pertain to me. As a follower of Jesus, I keep these words from the book of Titus in the Bible in my head. But when God our Saviour revealed his kindness and love, he saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. The Prime Minister is right. We need to show kindness to each other. And the first step to that? Well, those words from the Bible pointed out. Don't start with how righteous you are, progressive or conservative though you may be. Start with how kind and righteous God is and work backwards from there to yourself. Who knows? That may start to break down the divides that referenda results and plebiscite polls are failing to breach. Podcast.